Is our planet reaching the point of no return? With global temperatures rising and natural disasters intensifying, this question is becoming ever more relevant. But is this question also being politicized? Dr. Stephen Koonin is a theoretical physics professor and former undersecretary for science. In recent years, he's been criticized for his stance on climate change and efforts to separate the politics from the science. Join us to hear his take on what climate science tells us, what it doesn't, and why that matters. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting edition of the Into the Impossible podcast. It is I, your formerly fearful host, Dr. Brian Keating, joined with a very, very special guest today, all the way from New York City. It is Stephen Koonin, a renowned physicist and more recently involved in government policy and also urban studies of a kind. And we're going to get into all that. Welcome to La Jolla. Great Steve. to be here, Brian, and chatting with you. Uh, we have so many uh, things to talk about today. Yeah, we're going to talk about your wonderful book, which is uh, provocative, which is controversial, which is technical and chock full of information. We've had on many, many uh, climate um, scientists and, and those who are interested in climate change. Just from a uh, human perspective, we recently had on Kim Stanley Robinson, who's written many books about this, who's an alum of UCSD, as it turns out. Um, and we had on Tim Palmer last yep. year, right. um, who shared the Nobel Prize, I believe, back in uh, way back in the mid 2000s, right. along with uh, yeah. Al Gore. And I think maybe we'll start with the book, as we often do, because when you see a book, you're never supposed to judge it by its cover. <laughs> but my audience knows I love to judge books by the covers, because what else do you have to go right. on, you know, when you don't know the author? I, I know you very well. Your yeah. reputation is, is titanic. Um, explain for my audience, please, the choice of title, the subtitle, and most delightfully, the art on the cover the as cover well. Art, right. yes. So let me start with the title. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, I've come to understand it's really a triple entendre. <laughs> uh, it refers primarily to the state of the science, that there's an awful lot we don't know about climate science. Mm -hmm. It refers to how I felt and how many other people feel when they're exposed to what the UN, for example, or the research literature says about what we know and what we don't know. And then finally, it refers, I think, to the uncertainty about what we're going to do about all of this, mm -hmm. the growing human influences on the climate. So that's the, the title, mm -hmm. if you like. A major motivation for writing the book was to expose non-experts to what the IPCC, the UN Climate Panel, and the research literature really say about what we know and what we don't know, which is very different than what you get from the media or the politicians or other activists who are uh, talking about climate. Mm -hmm. As far as the cover art goes, I know very little about that. Uh, I was given a set of possibilities. Uh, pick one. Uh, I consulted with a lot of people, uh, and this is the one uh, we've, <laughs> we came up with. I very much enjoyed this book. I listened to an audio. We have the, the physical hard copy, and it's, you know, discussing it in detail, I think, is necessary for an audience like mine. It is an erudite audience, the most intelligent audience in the known universe, All as right. I like to say. <laughs> and I want to take it back, as I often do, to my hero, Galileo. Galileo said the following. Our job as scientists, he said, is to measure what's measurable and to make measurable what is not yet so. And your late great colleague at Caltech, my former advisor and mentor, Andrew Lang, he quoted that on the occasion of the, the induction of him and his team into the Linsean Society, uh -huh, which is what uh -huh. Galileo would yep, put on yep, all of his yep, books. After, yep. um, What do you make of the ability of climate scientists to both utilize the methods of science, of hard science, of data acquisition and collection, much of which, a lot of which is done here at Scripps, um, but also to f maybe make inroads into politics, as Galileo did, unintentionally so. What do you make of the highly politicized nature of this? Because I don't have this in cosmology. Nobody wakes up and says, I hate that constellation over there. That's a Republican <laughs> constellation. I will not look at it. Yeah. Why has it become so politicized? It is atmospheric chemistry, which is derived physics. Tell well, me, Steve. Th what's there your is a real science at the heart of all of this. It's actually a wonderful science uh, that mixes up physics and biology and geology and chemistry and so on. And as, as I have learned it over the last 20 years, 
I've become a fan of it. <laughs> I think it's great. Uh, and we can go into some of the challenges and, and so on. But I think um, what has caused it to come a cropper, if you like, or become so politicized, is that the implications of it, uh, if some people are correct, uh, mean that we need a radical restructuring of the way society works globally in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and find other ways of using energy. Many scientists in the business, though not by no means all, have come to mix up their role as informers and advisors with uh, that of persuading and trying to dictate policy. Mm. And I think scientists cross the line when they do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I call them political scientists. All right, very good. <laughs> uh, as yes. a, as a, yeah. um, now, one of the things that I very much enjoy about this book, and I emphasize quite frequently with uh, controversial guests that come on with, with those that don't believe, sort of, quote unquote, on the standard narrative or the accepted narrative that is settled science, as obviously the book connotes uh, a dis, a dis, you know, dissension from that mm -hmm. opinion. But, um, but the, you know, the notion that we should listen to experts and that right. there is uniformity of experts. Um, and even if there's a preponderance of experts, I mean, the, the statement by, by this gentleman, Albert Einstein, that you know, when a hundred scientists came out against right. the theory of relativity, he said if it were if they were really right, yeah, just need right. one. Of um, but of right. course, we have people like your former colleague at, at Caltech, uh, Richard Feynman, who would say things like, you know, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. experts. Yeah. So, what do you make of this? How, what is a lay person to do, or maybe an educated lay person, technically minded lay person? We are dealing with a heat wave. Yeah. They tell us of un, you know unrivaled proportions, and yet that wasn't predicted last year. In other words, we 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 are living through you know. Supposedly the warmest year on record, maximum records in Palermo, Sicily, just yesterday, um, uh, 25 days of heat over 110 degrees in neighboring Phoenix. Um, what do, what is an educated person to do when confronted by seemingly disparate facts and evidence, local and predictive? How do we assess all of this? So, so I teach climate science at the graduate level at NYU, and I'll start teaching again in a month or two. Uh, and what I tell the students is, first of all, uh, it's a mix actually of engineers and business people. Mm -hmm. I tell them, read, don't read the summaries, don't read the press, read either the IPCC summaries or go look at the data yourself, okay? and then judge from that. Um, and eyes get opened up when they read, for example, there are no long-term trends in hurricanes, as you can find in the IPCC report. A lot of confusion uh, is about weather versus climate. Mm -hmm. The official definition of climate is that it's a 30-year average of weather properties. Averages, extremes, variances, and so on. And so anything that happens in one year or in a given year is not climate. So right. for example, California has been in drought for the last 20 years or mm -hmm. so. That's climate. But then you get last year a deluge of biblical proportions. Uh, that's weather, unless it continues mm -hmm. for so many months, uh, so many years. So, you know, the, the tricky thing about all of this is that the weather has natural cycles in it. The El Nino is probably the most familiar mm -hmm. cycle. But then there are longer term cycles, periods of 60, 70 years, which uh, you know, are probably called climate cycles, uh, such as the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the Atlantic Multi-Decadal Oscillation, and so on. And you can get fooled. Mm -hmm. I like to show, as you can find in the book, the record of the height of the Nile over almost a thousand years, which the Egyptians were able to compile. And what you see is that there's tremendous variation from year to year, but there are multi-decadal trends. And so in the beginning of the record, starting at about 630 AD, you see it go down for about 100 years. And no doubt there's some medieval Egyptian um, climate panel saying new normal, new normal, as it got drier and drier. And if they just waited 100 years, it comes back up again. So this is one of the challenges in the science to distinguish the natural variability from the response to human influences. Mm -hmm. 
my particular interest is will be on astrophysical constraints, and we'll get to those in a minute. But just to point out, I often go down to visit my uh, friends that have a much nicer view on the coast of La Jolla Cove yeah. at, that are based at uh, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, yeah. which is you know, co-recipients co of that same 20, 2006 Nobel Prize with uh, Vice President Gore at the time. Uh, and, uh, and there's a picture, and it shows the very first building, which comprised the very first academic institution in La Jolla, California. And that is the Scripps building, the mm -hmm. director's mm -hmm. building, or their office building. And in the background, you can see La Jolla Cove. And you see these far famous sea caves and whatnot. Right, right. And you see Scripps Beach, you know, which is a protective thing. Right. And the sea level, and those are taken in 1905. Mm -hmm. The sea level hasn't changed at all. I mean, actually, completely identically flat, no variation. And this is like, you can see the evidence right outside your window if you're down there. So... To what extent should we pay attention when we hear things like, you know, Florida, you know, coastlines are going to be underwater and Manhattan's going to be, you're going to be, you know, uh, kayaking to work next year in the village. Yeah. Um, what, you know, to what extent should we be mindful of truly planetary scale phenomena of which, you know, sea level is a certainly very, very important uh, metric. Um, to what level can those be tied to physical observables that may be predictable? Yeah. So the prediction is quite a separate matter. You start first by asking what has been mm. changes at the global level or at regional mm -hmm. level over the last 120 years or so, which is about as long as we've got good records, maybe 140 years mm -hmm. or so. If you go back beyond that, you get into historical records, and then even further back, you've got paleo proxies, tree rings, lake vars, things of that sort. Okay. So we only have a relatively short record. And we do see changes on the multi-decadal scale in that relatively short record. I described for you the uh, the Egyptian uh, um, height of the Nile, but global temperature has certainly gone up. We've gone up about 1.3 degrees since 1900, um, and that rise is not monotonic. It was rising pretty rapidly from 1910 to 1940, was flat or slightly declining from 1940 to 1970, and then has been going up again since about 1980. So that alone will tell a scientist or even a non-scientist that it's a lot more complicated than just CO2 was warming the planet mm -hmm. because the CO2 was increasing steadily during that time, but the temperature's going up and down. Right. And I mean, oftentimes down. I see things like, oh, it's the highest temperature ever, a set of temperature record last set in, in 1947. Well, well, then why was it ranging, or not 1847? Um, and that kind of brings up the notion of uh, what we call, you know, Malmquist bias or, yeah. or a, a form of sample variance bias yeah. that we're uh, attentive to things that we can measure. Uh, as Galileo said, you should make measurable what you can't measure. And we don't have built in CO2 detectors in our heads. Um, so by making it measurable, what extent is correlation conflated with causation? Yeah. So, so the IPCC. When you read the reports, as opposed to the summaries, mm -hmm. um, very carefully distinguishes between the detection of a change, which is relatively straightforward if you've got the data, uh, versus the attribution of a change to human influences, let's say rising greenhouse gases. That attribution is really tough for two reasons at least. Maybe I'll think of a third, but mm -hmm. I've got two at least. One is it's a very noisy system as we've said. Mm -hmm. The second is that there are these natural long-term oscillations as mm -hmm. opposed to the forced response. And then the third is that human influences are physically small. The planet absorbs and re-radiates as heat about 240 watts per square meter of sunlight that comes back out as long-wave infrared radiation. Mm -hmm. The human influences on that net of CO2 and aerosols and methane and nitrous oxide and so on is about two and a half watts per square meter. So we're talking about a 1% change mm -hmm. in the radiative balance of the planet. Mm -hmm. You might say, well, that's not a big deal. On the other hand, if you do astrophysical style estimates, 1% to 300 Kelvin is three degrees. Mm -hmm. And so the numbers are about right. We worry about three degrees. Mm -hmm. um, and But it's a small number, which means you're in the noise as far as other influences mm -hmm. go. And often we see these plots, uh, the famous Keeling curve, of Ooh, course, yeah. uh, derived right. here by... Uh, yeah. 
uh, Keeling, uh, right. Professor I, Keeling. I and, Keeling. Yes. Oh, you did? Oh, wow, fantastic. Yeah. So his, um, uh, well, I want to get into him and his son, who's, yep. who's currently a professor yeah, here, because yeah. I've yeah. heard wonderful talks by him that are persuasive, and I think, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's very interesting to, to get into these discussions. Let's first take a giant leap backwards. Let's talk about... Um, you're a theoretical physicist mm -hmm. by training. What is a model? And, you know, how does it differ? You know, we talk about the standard model of particle physics. We talk about models of cosmology right. that I study in yeah. my, my graduate thesis. Yeah. What is a model? And then what, by what metrics can we really apprise the goodness of fit of a model? In other words, we talk about sigmas and we're getting into lots of yep. sigmas. And yeah. what is a sigma? What is a model? A sigma is a measure of uncertainty either in the data, no measurement is perfect. Yep. There's always some range of likelihood uh, for a, a given measurement. Uh, and then the models, uh, there's not just one climate model, there are about 50 of them, and they don't all give the same answer. And so you can have a sigma or uncertainty in the model as well. And so we're trying to compare two uncertain quantities, how did the climate change over the last 80 years, and how do the models predict or des describe that change? over the last 80 years because, all right, so let's talk about what a model is. In the present context, it's a large computer program that follows the motion of air, water, momentum, energy, radiation uh, through the atmosphere and in the ocean where you also have salinity and currents, step by step through of order 10 million voxels uh, for 100 years and tries to describe the gross features of the climate system, jet stream, Gulf Stream, uh, deserts, uh, Hadley cells, things of that sort. Uh, and then it tries to say, if the CO2 goes up, how are things going to change? So that 1% that uh, change in the rate of balance. And that's a very difficult problem to do, in part because it's a big computer problem, but more importantly, the size of the boxes you can make in the model is only about 100 kilometers on a side. Mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot that happens within a box. Think about thunderheads, for example, right. which are a few kilometers long. You can't describe those explicitly, and so you're going to have to make an assumption mm -hmm. about how many clouds are there, where are they in the voxel, when do they appear, when do they disappear, because that affects the sunlight and the infrared radiation. Mm -hmm. Different people make different assumptions, and so you get different answers. Mm -hmm. Behind you is a is a vial, there's a large beaker, and that I collected when I was at the South Pole right. in Antarctica. Right. Uh, the second time. I've been there twice okay. on occasion of the yep. national government oh, sending me there on an yeah, yep. all-expenses yep. trip for yep. the bicep yep. experiment. There's yep. cosmology, yeah, tremendous yeah. work that's done there, um, including samples of of, air, of ice cores that go back hundreds of thousands of years and monitor. The science of climate, you know, CO2 impact, it goes back to, what, Arrhenius, Arrhenius and others Arrhenius. back in 1800. to realize the infrared activity yep. uh, and that, hey, this is going to change the climate. They thought it would be a good thing. That's right, Arrhenius yeah. Arrhenius was from Sweden. Maybe not surprised. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, uh, Nobel, <laughs> Nobel is are, yeah, are yeah. High, preferentially biased towards Swedes. Right. Um, so when I look at that vial now, I'm reminded of, of some recent talking points that I'm seeing online that we have a Six Sigma deviation to the negative of Antarctic ice shelf uh, thickness as measured by, or extent rather, as measured by these uh, satellites that do such things. Um, and it's it's just obvious when you see the trend, and I'll put a picture up on the uh, for the viewers and yep. listeners to yep. the podcast on audio can find it on right. uh, my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating. Uh, but if you can if you can speak to that, what level of you know kind of uh, concern should we have when you see a number like six sigma? It's it's it was good enough for Higgs to to uh, win a Nobel Prize, right? Um, right. So right. what what do we make of this as well, as a theoretical well, physicist? You'd be delighted if any of your well, predictions yeah, were yeah, three sigma. I mean, the problem is that you know today's six sigma uh, happened uh, many times in the past. So particularly with respect to ice, and we can maybe talk more interestingly about the North Pole at some point. But, uh, you know, things change a lot. The planet currently is coming out of, well, we're not sure what it's coming out of, but it's in what's called an interglacial. Uh, if you go back 20,000 years uh, the planet was mostly covered with it. Well, not mostly, but there was a lot of ice on the planet, and the great ice sheets extended down to Chicago or even New York. Um, and if you go back even further, 125,000 years ago, those ice sheets were, had retreated. Um, basically, they were 
less than what we have today. The planet was a degree warmer and sea level was six meters higher than it was. That's called the Eemian period. Mm -hmm. right? And those variations, which are pretty cyclical, are driven by astronomical phenomena, the way in which sunlight falls on the Earth, the Earth's orbit, the tilt of its axis, and, and so on. So we shouldn't, at one level, be real surprised that we'll lose an ice mm. right now. In terms of returning to astronomical topics, my yeah. favorite subject uh, besides me uh, <laughs> is uh, uh, the the net amount of carbon is not is not infinite. Uh, there is a certain amount of uh, biological material which was deposited, you know, millions yep. or perhaps yep. you know even longer, hundreds of millions of years ago. And even according to anyone who is firmly believing in the anthropogenic and carbon dioxide you know, modulated global warming, they will say under oath, they will say, yes, there's a fine, there's a limit to how much carbon we can't produce where there is not an infinite store of carbon right. in the Earth's right. um, crust and we don't have access to it. Um, to that extent, what, you know, what are the kind of astronomical or planetary scale phenomena? Um, it, it's It's been calculated, I, I heard... Uh, uh, you know, Charles David Keeling mm -hmm. was uh, the son of Ralph Keeling, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he spoke about this. He first brought it to my attention that there is a finite amount. So to what extent do we uh, have to worry about reaching the complete um, uh, combustion of that carbon converting yeah. to carbon yeah. dioxide yeah. before, say, we reach what I call, you know, um, uh, clean energy escape velocity? In other words, at some point we will have fusion we will talk we're we going to talk, talk about that we're going to yeah. talk about fusion we're going to talk about high tc superconductors yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you i That's can't resist the with right a physicist yeah, you know yeah, i yeah, love yeah, to nerd yeah. out and we right. will and it's yeah. and it's very pertinent to this climate right. discussion right. um but to what extent do you know can we make it kind of stretch the glide where we're never going to burn all that carbon but even if we did there's some upper limit on how much we're going to burn before we hit escape velocity right. and just everything so, so, is so, except so, for rockets right. are clean. so so this is where the real world of economics and technology People in the fossil fuel business, which is what carbon is in the ground, oil, gas, and coal, mm -hmm. talk about a supply curve, namely how much oil or gas or mm -hmm. coal could I get out of the ground at today's price with today's technology? Mm -hmm. And the answer is we've got known carbon in the ground, known in the sense that you could invest in it. Uh, we've got about 30 or 40 years right. of, of oil, let's say. And you might say, oh my God, we're going to run out. But in fact, you know, what's called the resource as opposed to the reserve, the amount of stuff you could imagine getting out with better technology or at a higher price, that's a hundred years mm -hmm. at least. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're not running out anytime soon, but it may be that the cost of extracting it will go up. And at some point, it becomes more economical to get your energy some other way. Mm -hmm. right? So we will not run out. But, uh, you know, the famous quote that the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stone. <laughs> right. All right? Um, so um, the carbon in the ground is so much more than what we use right mm -hmm. now that that's not going to be a major factor. So you brought up, you know, fossil fuel, also companies. I'd be remiss to say that you didn't, you know, participate and you weren't involved with British Petroleum for some years. And, right. Um, what do you say to those people out there, like your fellow professor at NYU, uh, Professor Scott Galloway, uh, who's in the Stern School? He, right. he said, uh, "Quote: um, Science is uniformly on board with the you know, climate, almost uh, what, what you might call, you know, extremists, <clears throat> and only the right-wing lunatics deny that this is settled." Right. So what do you what say I, to Scott? Yeah, so, so what I would say to Scott is, if you've read my book, Scott, you'll see that everything I say is right out of the UN reports mm. and or the research literature. And so if you think I'm denying something, uh, tell me what I'm denying, mm. because I'm quoting to you the official science. Scott, your problem is you haven't read the reports in any detail. That's right. So um, getting back to the to the you know question of of human innovation and mm -hmm. when we will we're using different types of stones you know glass and and yep. uh, metal and yep. Yep. and yep. so forth silicon uh, right. silicon stones Pe right petrochemicals petrochemicals yeah, right. right so i always say you know that um when people and lately there's been a tremendous amount of interest in extraterrestrial life and yes. it's a fascinating yes. topic and we do talk about this quite a bit on this yeah, channel right. but um but besides that i always wonder you know 
for a spacecraft to get here, I claim if we were going to go spacefaring and they were to ask us when we get to, you know, planet Blorcon 7, they would ask us, oh, how'd you get here? What was your technological pathway? And we, at some point, we'd have to describe what a whale is, right? I mean, yeah. there, there's, yes. there's no yeah, way, yeah. like solar yeah. panels don't come from solar panels. We right. didn't build a microprocessor using microprocessors. So we had all this primitive technology. So my question is, you know, how much, um, how likely is it that another civilization exist that has fossil fuels that has some form of, of prebiotic or pre you know advanced mm -hmm. uh, life forms and that that was then used over geologic time scales maybe involving plate tectonics etc uh, but but how likely are these planetary phenomena ubiquitous throughout the universe is a question i've always had so the laws of physics we believe yeah. are invariant <laughs> that's right, right i hope so including the laws of chemistry that's right uh which are much more rich than the physics laws that's but right. anyway um and you know there's only a finite um, number of ways to get energy out of the universe. Mm -hmm. You got radiation, mm -hmm. photons, you've got um, the rearrangement of atoms, you've got the rearrangement of protons and neutrons, uh, you've got gravity, uh, and we pretty well have tapped into all of those in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So I would be very surprised if we came on a civilization that had yet another way of getting energy out. Yeah. And because it's a precursor, you can't build a fusion reactor unless at some point you had fossil fuels, yeah, at least right. in yeah. our timeline. Yeah, I've talked with uh, Professor Adam Frank of oh, University yeah. of Rochester yeah, about yeah. this, and he's claimed that we should look for as a techno signature, we should look for global warming on another planet. We should look for CO2. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay, it's speak really yes, hard more. to be able to do that. All right. <laughs> we have a hard enough time measuring the temperature of our own planet. All right. so. Well, maybe not global warming, but carbon dioxide. Well, and, sure, and there will be carbon. Of course, yeah, we know oxygen, that there's carbon left over. Mm -hmm. Molecular oxygen, things yeah, like yeah. that. Is it true that there are much more powerful sources of atmospheric forcing functions like methane, water vapors as a greenhouse gas. Uh, what level do you think that these people who are so in the climate, you know, kind of leading to a catastrophe caused by human beings, settled science, so-called so camp, how how do you respond to them when they, they seem to have multiple agendas? Like one agenda that I'm hearing a lot is um, is what I call, uh, or, or what just seems to be like kind of anti-natalism, where they want to have population control. And this is very reminiscent of, you know, the 1970s when, when this was uh, Ehrlich and others. Yeah, yeah, and I remember. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they yes. were complaining about. Club of Rome and all that. Yeah, stuff. who won yeah. All, all these yeah, uh, prizes, yeah. of course. And, right. and uh, deep, right. depopulation seems almost like a, a, more, a more pressing concern. So some of the, some of the concerns that I've heard uh, about this book or complaints about the book is, look, you say things, there's some fixed fraction of the, uh, of the Earth's population who are going to die uh, whatever that means, you're going to be killed by, again, this is their terminology. I didn't right? say that. No, you okay. don't say that, but, yeah. but you make a forecast, yes. or there are forecasts in the yes. book, and people make this, how many deaths can be attributed to right. global warming. Right. So can you speak so, about so that? Let's, let's talk about yeah. the deaths, which uh, I talk a little bit yeah, about in that's the right. book. Let's talk about what has been first, rather than what the projections are. Mm -hmm. And there's a, actually now I think two articles in The Lancet, which is a reputable yeah. uh, medical journal, British which journal. looks at globally, the uh, deaths attributable to temperature extremes over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And what they find, and I, I, I've referenced the paper in, in many talks I've given, uh, it's right there, anybody can look at it, mm -hmm. is, and I'll make up the numbers approximately because yeah. I don't remember them exactly, about 5 million deaths from 2001 to 2018, uh, globally 5 million, were attributable to temperature extremes. Of those five million, 90% were attributable to extreme cold, and 10% were attributable to extreme warmth. Right, but there's no way to target, you know, let's let's just have some warmth targeted to Minsk, you know, where right. these deaths no, are taking place, right? No, right. I mean, but, you know, to say that the warming of the globe is causing more people to die right. is a true statement. Right. It, but it's not factually complete. It's not. Because it's also causing fewer people to die from cold. Mm -hmm. And the net, actually, is that there are more people alive because the globe has been warming. Mm -hmm. What do you say to people, young people? Um, I don't know if you have children, but I but do. I, I do. And, um, 
you know, I hear a lot about the, the following that we should the, actually the best way to reduce the most effective way is not reducing the number of flights, not reducing the amount of meat that you eat, not, uh, you know, driving less and carpooling more, buying electric cars, having fewer kids. And I always get concerned about that because I, I think there's a not, you know, significant gap between that and saying, well, if more people died, uh, it would be better for the climate or, if, you know, people climate suicides. And, and there are deaths of despair now. And there's tremendous psychological damage yeah. occurring to yes, children because of climate, um, climate, you know, some call it hysteria. So okay. so how do you react so to that? I would depopulation? Say, say to your kids um, is, uh, uh, again, I don't know them uh, yeah. but uh, what I've taught my kids who are 30 some odd years old is that there are only one and a half billion of us in the developed world the OECD countries all right we live a wonderful lifestyle on average um, there are six and a half billion people on the planet whose theme or meme is not enough mm -hmm. not enough energy not enough food uh, not enough transportation and so on and it is immoral to deny them the energy that they need in order to live a better life. Mm -hmm. And so I would say to your kids, um, go spend some time in Nigeria or in uh, the poor parts of South America, uh, and then tell me that we should be cutting back globally on energy. Yeah. Okay, so in the book, you make uh, a very interesting set of logical you know, syllogisms. One is that, you know, in order for this to truly be catastrophic, you know, it has to be caused by human beings. It has to be, um, you know, unavoidable, irreversible and uh, and and so forth. So there are several different uh, premises of the book, um, which seem, you know, prima facie inarguable. Like if humans aren't con contributing to it, then humans can't necessarily solve it unless we, you know, kill every cow. Well, I, mean, well, I mean, adaptation is a solution. I want to get to that. So okay. so here's so one theme that I believe is attributable to in the book mm -hmm. is that there's no plausible way to reduce the CO2 contributions to the atmosphere. Now, I want to I want to just before you respond, yeah, yeah. I want to say if, if you if that is your contention, what if I tell you that there have been two recent breakthroughs, uh, one of which I talked about with your colleague, mm -hmm. uh, Charles Seif, mm -hmm. uh, NYU, um, and that's nuclear fusion. And then today's news, which I I've talked about with my colleague Jorge Hirsch here many times, uh, and that is uh, high TC superconductor. Let me tell you, God hands you a letter, says, yeah, Steve, yeah. guess what? I've got good news and I've got good news. We've got high TC, superconductivity, ambient pressure, and we've also got nuclear fusion, yeah. and it's they're about six right. years away. And okay. and better yet, AI is going to control everything, right. and so right. put it AI in charge. Do you stand by that we can't vacuum out or de you know decarbonize no, I, I, the atmosphere? Look, I mean, uh, if I had wings, I could fly, right? <laughs> okay. The, the thing is, I think there are two things here. Does the science or the technology exist? Mm -hmm. Okay, and we can talk about ITC or fusion. But the second is, it's got to be better than the alternatives economically and ability to scale. We can produce, um, you know, electricity right now from fusion. Uh, it's just a question of how expensive is it going to be? And will it scale? Right? Mm -hmm. Same is true fission, by the way. It's a little more expensive. Yeah. But you know, if you're willing to pay the cost, you can run the whole country or the whole world on wind and solar. But that would take so much resource away from mm -hmm. other things we need that it's a values question for the world. Do you want to do that <laughs> versus giving more refrigeration to a few billion people pivoting off of that yeah. my, my question wasn't only directed towards the supply side of the carbon equation it was also the negative uh, 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 subtraction and in other words oh, if you had infinite free energy oh, on tap yeah, you could, could you suck out and yeah, how would you yeah, do it so, have you so thought let's about talk it? about the carbon yeah. cycle for a second yeah, yeah, okay yeah. every year there are about 200 gigatons of carbon that flow up and back from the surface of the planet into the atmosphere and then back again. That 200 gigatons is caused by the growth of vegetation, it's caused by absorption or desorption in the ocean, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, and it's just about in equilibrium, we believe. Or at least it would be, except for the fact that we're taking about nine gigatons a year of carbon and adding it to this annual cycle. Mm. So if you could make a small perturbation in that annual cycle by making plants grow better, for example, you could counteract uh, some of the emissions, maybe all of it. 
So that's one, and people are trying to find fast-growing plants and so on. The other way of doing it is to capture it thermochemically uh, out of the air, direct air capture, as mm -hmm. it's called. There again, it's a question of economics and scale. The current cost right now is a couple hundred dollars a ton of CO2 mm -hmm. removed. And we're talking about gigatons. Uh, and so you quickly, quickly get up to big numbers. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, you should work on technology and so on, uh, but it's not there yet. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have a take on the, you know, if you can perhaps react on a fit from a physics level, the resistance to fission. I, I view that as a tell uh, because you'll see people like the famous, you know, um, uh, know-it-all uh, Greta Thunberg talking about, well, no, nuclear can't be part of the solution. And to me and others, that's kind of like, you know, you're drowning in the ocean. If you really think you're drowning, you know, the old joke, you know, you don't wait for the helicopter. You know, God says, you know, I sent you a, a helicopter. I sent yeah, you a yeah, boat. Yeah. I said, uh, but <laughs> but uh, what do you make of the resistance to fission? I mean, is it all just like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl yeah, and Fukushima? Yeah. Or is there something deeper at work? So, so there is. We a, shut down the uh, reactors you probably saw yeah, on your no, drive. I know. Down. You shut down yeah. San Onofre. We shut it's down a, Indian Point. It's in $2 million dollars a day to yeah, store the waste. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. What, what do you make of this? So, um. There's a very nice book by uh, Spencer Weert, who is a historian of science, um, and it, I think it's probably about 40 years old, called Nuclear Fear. And it talks about the deep psychological fear that many people have of powerful forces that are invisible and you shouldn't be messing with. Mm -hmm. And he takes it all the way back to the Frankenstein hmm. myth, right? Uh, do not, do not reanimate and right. so on. And I think a lot of people, uh, that's a fear. All right. Um, I think also um, there's personal fear, radiation. I don't understand it. There are issues I think soluble of what do we do with the spent fuel, not waste, spent mm -hmm. fuel. Um, and but there are people who are starting to understand the realities of energy. Uh, Schellenberger. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Stuart Brand um, have come out and said, "Yeah, we have to do fission." I mean, it's certainly it's the only one that's you know planetary scale. We could actually power incredible cities and twenty percent of U.S. electricity already, and, and we more in France. Built, uh, more in mm -hmm. France, it's eighty percent roughly or seventy mm -hmm. something. We haven't built a reactor in this country in a long time. We just got a couple of new ones coming online right now. Mm -hmm. I think the technical innovation that's needed there uh, is twofold. We need to be making reactors smaller. A mm -hmm. typical reactor size is about 1,100 megawatts. People are talking about reactors that are 100 megawatt scale, so that's kind of the scale in a naval vessel. Um, build them in a factory, um, standard design, uh, not like the big ones, which are um, you know each uh, bespoke. Um, and then uh, the economics will be a lot better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it really depends how much do you value being carbon-free, mm -hmm. all right? If you don't want to be carbon-free, you probably don't need it. But if you care about carbon emissions, then it's absolutely essential. Let me take a, a little detour here. I, I am very close friends with a, a person we have in common, Paul Steinhardt, who's also been on the podcast. And uh, Paul has been accused of being a multiverse denier. Um, I reacted to a book that makes such a claim. It talks about um, uh, the, and not by a professional physicist. It talks about the, you know, the all all the evidence for the multiverse. Um, I'm blanking on the name, although I did review it for yeah. Physics Today about uh -huh. three years ago. So, but it, it didn't leave the greatest impression on me. But he talks about multiverse deniers. Um, I found that in my review, I said that it evokes. Uh, uh, you know, kind of the, a word which should not have its currency devalued, not just because of my personal connection to, you know, people that perished in the Holocaust, mm -hmm. but uh, there is a very uh, consistent thread of people that accuse you of being, you know, a climate change denier. What does that mean? And how do you react to that? Yeah, I, you know, I think it means that I don't buy into the narrative which you can say in a few words, right? That uh, we've already broken the climate and it's gonna get a lot worse unless we do something uh, rapidly and on a large scale. And I 
think when you read the science. So what, as I mentioned, what's in the book is not my science. Right. <laughs> it's right out of the official UN science. So please tell me, what am I denying? I guess what what, what I've heard it criticized yeah. um, in particular yeah. was that uh, the data are not, it's not saying it's cherry picked. It will say you took an uh, uh, AR, uh, these um, uh, assessment reports, yeah, right? So, uh, but then AR6 came along right. and it showed so, that actually there's not, it went from low confidence to mild yeah, confidence. Yeah, yeah. So how do you, how do you react to so, that? It's so, always going to change. Okay, right? So it's always going to change. Um, the, um, book was written before AR5 came out, mm -hmm. so I quoted AR5. I make in the book you know, references to some of the research literature that was included in AR6, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm pleased to say they say more or less the same things I said. Um, there's probably, you know, in the works an update, uh, which would, but there are essentially no things in there that I would change. Yes, some of the specific wording is different in AR6, but the fact that there's no long-term trend in hurricanes, that Greenland is melting today no more rapidly than it was 80 or 90 years ago, that sea level rise remains on a long-term basis at uh, three millimeters a year. I mean, those are things that were in AR5, and they're there in AR6. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of your former students, apparently, yeah. Mark Boslow, right. <laughs> wrote yeah. a, a review, which I, I felt was a series of uh, straw men and women, maybe, uh, that get uh, get torched. Uh, so it says, yeah. um, unfortunately, Unsettled is a book you can accurately judge by its cover. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. <laughs> Boslow, <or> Dr. <laughs> Boslow, maybe, uh, because, you know, that's my yeah. signature stock and trade as we open the episode. Yeah. He may, you make use, he accuses you yes. of an all straw man concocted by opponents yeah. of the climate size in the 1990s, creating an illusion of arrogant scientists, biased media, and lying politicians. The phrase science is settled is repeated as a target phrase. It seems like he only read the title. <laughs> uh, bogus science is settled rhetoric. Yeah. So he's really just taking into account the title and the um, and, and essentially the uh, this notion that these things are you know constantly in doubt and never are uh, never in doubt and always in error, as, as, as uh, Landau used to say about cosmologists. Searches <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, do come up with, uh, but there are many there are many examples of physical problems that are difficult to model. So a lot of the criticism I heard from Lawrence Krauss, who's yep. been a guest on the yep. show, he wrote a book yep. uh, 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 climate yep. uh, on climate change. Tim Palmer, we're going to get to him. Yep in just a bit. Yep. Um, some of the criticism I get is Stephen thinks he's better at modeling than we are. Or he thinks that we are not as good as the modeling that is necessary and sufficient. How do you react to yeah. those criticisms? Well, the modeling is what it is, all right? Yeah. And again, I quote what's in the book. Um, I, let me say a word about Mr. Boswell first, or Dr. Boswell. Um, he, he was in one of my classes, if I remember yeah, right. Field I, yeah, I don't think he was ever actually a student in the sense that a no, graduate No, not a graduate student, student uh, right. But he tosses that and, in and, uh, Yeah, of course. Um, and the review he wrote, unfortunately, was really light on science. I mean, I'm happy to respond to specific criticisms. Kunin says X, but in fact it's Y. And you will find on my Medium page some really detailed responses to some of the uh, mainstream climate scientists who criticized me, and I think I've responded mm -hmm. effectively. Uh, do I know more about modeling than those guys? No, absolutely not. They know more. But I do know modeling, all right? Mm -hmm. And I do know in other spheres what a good model is and what isn't, and also what the certainties and uncertainties are. And again, I just repeat what's in the book. The last and most kind of ludicrous uh, claim in this in this uh, article by Mr. Dr. Bosworth is third is climate scientists, not deniers, that have been compared to Nazis and perpetrators of genocide. In fact, it was Crichton, Michael Crichton himself, yeah. in his in the appendix to his book State of yeah. Fear, who directly equate. And I don't know, uh, climate scientists to eugenicists. But I mean, but wait, it is true. There is climate hysteria that is leading people to not have children, to not get married, and to consider having, you know, uh, basically uh, be becoming, you know, sterilizing yeah. themselves yeah. so that they don't have children. So, I mean, that it, maybe it's not eugenics in the Nazi sense, God forbid. But but at a certain level, he's saying that that you are in the camp that is is accusing the, the good guys. I'm not being, accusing anybody of anything at the science level. Right. I am accusing some of the prominent scientists, the journalists, the politicians, and some of the scientific institutions of misrepresenting what's in the official reports or the research literature. And I give in the book, and I've 
given subsequently many examples of that which are really tough to deny. So the scientific American also, which is you know no longer a real state of uh, of affairs that that it used to be when I was a kid. I used to. I loved it. I right? loved it. I yeah. had the amateur scientist. Yeah, yeah, I used to build yeah. the experiments. Martin Gardner, the mathematician. Martin Gardner, the mathematical. Yeah, 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 I loved I, it. I love that. It's really fallen yeah. uh, out of favor. Yeah. But um, but their critique is that um, you know that uh, the two such statements by Kunin follow the preamp the simple preamble for uh, the literature and government reports summarizes and say heat waves in the U.S. are now no more common than they were in 1900. That's one thing they're taking issue with, yep. and the warmest temperatures in the U.S. have not yep. risen the past yep. 50 years. I mean, what? I mean, it's it, these are just data points, right? So it's it should just be that. you can find it you can on the find, government. It's not website. your personal data, right? Well, you no, it's not my personal right. data. It's it's just the EPA. Mm -hmm. I can give you the URL. You can see the graph yourself. And both of I have to say, yeah. Steve. I mean, the the low level of intellectual kind of engagement of both of these things. For the first one by Boslow's is is predicated on the cover and the oh, name of the book. Right. And this one is predicated on the first two pages of the book. Yeah. It's clear, look, I try to read every book or listen to every yeah. book, yeah. Uh, but certainly something I'm going to be uh, going to be talking about with the author, but certainly if I'm criticizing a book, say the book about you multiverse would, you tonight. You think that both the Scientific American article and a fact check that was done by Climate Feedback, I think, mm -hmm. um, they were criticisms not of the book, but of a review of the book, <laughs> all right? And right. so the Scientific American folks put words in my mouth that are never in the book right. at all. And yes, I think the most disappointing part of all of this is that we have colleagues mm -hmm. who are nominally accomplished scientists who are behaving in ways that we'd probably throw our students out mm -hmm. uh, if they behaved that way. Let's go back to models. So um, the past three years have seen an incredible uh, amount of both trust in scientific institutions and great skepticism, uh, more or less predicated on the veracity of modeling. And I think, you know, in the case of Tim Palmer, um, who's been a past guest and, and mm -hmm. delightful to talk about, mm -hmm. um, but he has called for an, is an agreement with you that we need better models. And I think he talks about this state. You talked about the size of these voxels, yeah, which are the yeah. three-dimensional analog yeah. of a pixel, which yeah. is two-dimensional, yeah. and getting those down to kilometer scale. So his words, that requires a CERN, you know, our Manhattan Project style effort, which is nowhere in sight and would seem to then require, you know, government government scale investment. What do you make of a CERN for climate change? Yeah. How do you react to his... You know, the his world is spending a lot of money on climate modeling already. I think it's misspending a lot of it because they spend cycles on doing silly runs for the IPCC about different emission scenarios. Um, let's talk about computational requirements first, okay? Mm -hmm. So, naively, you would think that, uh, well, you need 20, 30 layers up in the atmosphere right. and another 15 down in the ocean. Uh, but it's the uh, horizontal size of the voxels that really determines the computational load. Mm -hmm. It's currently 100 kilometers. Mm -hmm. If you shrunk it to one kilometer, that's a factor of 100 linearly, mm -hmm. a factor of 10 to the fourth quadratically. But then you get another factor of 100 because you got to make the time steps a lot smaller mm -hmm. from the current condition. So we're now talking about a factor of a million, hmm. all right? Mm -hmm. uh, it goes as the, the cube, The cube of that, right. All right, mm -hmm. and you're gonna wait a long time before you got a computer that's a million times more powerful <laughs> than the exascale uh, machines that are at the forefront today. Mm -hmm. So I think computing's gonna develop for its own reasons, um, uh, you know, national security reasons in the US and mm -hmm. other things. Um, and we don't need the climate problem to push that. I think you want better um, observations uh, at the subgrid scale level. I think you want more continuous global observations, different variables. I think you need to engage professional statisticians, mm -hmm. uh, which they've not been doing right now. And you need more thinking than computing. Mm. Kerry Emanuel, who's another mainstream distinguished climate scientist at MIT, who was happy, by the way, to criticize my book before he read it, <laughs> as he told me. Um, Kerry says more thinking and less computing, uh, or at least more thinking, not necessarily more computing. More I agree. pencil and paper. I agree. Silicon. Yeah, yeah, right. Understanding. All right. I have a very long question, but okay. since he is a, uh, a past guest and yep. a friend of the podcast, yep. uh, Tim Palmer. 
um, who authored a wonderful book. We mm-hmm. had him on the podcast last year. You can find that. I'll put a link somewhere up here. He says the following. It's a lengthy question, but here we go. Go ahead. Climate models are not perfect by a long way, and collectively, they do not tell us how bad climate change will be in unambiguous terms. Mm-hmm. At one end of the spectrum, they predict climate change outcomes which could well be manageable by society without substantial mitigation. Like At the other end, they predict outcomes which are catastrophic, right. indeed existential to much of society e.g. through semi-continuous heat waves of a severity that the human body cannot withstand unless we do mitigate. The distribution of the possible climate changes peaks somewhere between these two extrema. And so we end up with probabilistic estimates of climate change. But we are getting used to probabilities and weather prediction. If the chance of rain is 20% this afternoon, will I bring my waterproofs, my umbrella in our afternoon hike? If I do, it will weigh down my backpack, making it somewhat uncomfortable. If I don't and I get drenched, it'll be extremely uncomfortable. So what to do? It's a personal decision, not one that a meteorologist can make. Given these estimates that are probabilistic of climate change, what is your opinion on whether it is worth the economic cost of trying to reach net zero by 2050, like the weather forecast? It's not a decision the climate scientists can make on behalf of individual society. Um, so for all of your concern about skillfulness and realism of models, yeah. how have you decided? Is in his view, is the current estimated risk mm-hmm. of catastrophic climate change big yeah. enough to get to net zero by 2050? I guess the one way to say it is there's an expected value, right? You took the the probability of the negative outcome, the probability uh, and the impact economically, human yep. you know uh, impact, all sorts of different impacts, and then you subtract the you know, the uh, the negative of those right. of those possibilities. Right. So tell me, have you? I guess how have you decided? Should we? Is the risk is a pascal's wager of climate right. change i guess and and what i would say is tim is confusing his role as a scientist uh with his role as a citizen okay i think his role as a scientist and mine is to properly portray the probability distribution to the decision makers that's the broad society industry politicians and not just in the u.s or in the UK, the but world. for the developing world, okay? Mm-hmm. And what we have to do is to balance the risks, uncertainties, and benefits of a changing climate against the growing need of the rest of the world for reliable, affordable, and clean energy. And in weighing that balance, it's a values discussion, it's risk tolerance, intergenerational equity, and oh, by the way, it's economics. If Tim were to ask that question to a general person in Nigeria, he will get a very different answer because those folks are facing a real existential threat that is certain, immediate, and soluble, whereas the rest of us uh, it's vague, uncertain, probabilistic, and so on. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there's a wonderful paper I like to quote by a guy named Anthony Downs. And he was um, a political scientist, economist, uh, died a year or two ago. He was working at Brookings. Uh, but early in his career, he was working at UCLA. And in the 60s, he was watching the smog get worse and worse in the LA basin. And it was getting worse in large part because more and more people were getting cars. And what he said in this wonderful paper he wrote was that the elite's environmental deterioration is just the common man trying to improve his lot. Mm -hmm. And so, Tim, you go ask that question in um, Nigeria, okay? And let's get a hundred different voices from a hundred countries together and decide what we're gonna do about this. Nobody has given an answer that provides the energy needs for the developing world and at the same time gets to net zero by 2050. Right. And so we have to, you know, think carefully about these things that are multi-coupled. And I guess that may answer the original question that I had is why is this so fraught and perilous politically? We look up at a constellation and unless we're looking at a comet or an asteroid coming to destroy the earth, (laughs) it it doesn't involve existential questions. It may involve deeper, meaning philosophical questions, et cetera. Um, So, okay, great. Well, Steve, we've reached the, uh, the final segment of the podcast where I love to ask my esteemed guests such as yourself for existential questions, which I call the final four, 
are the uh, quintessential quattro. No, yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. say quintessential when it's four things. Right. Um, so the first thing, and all of them are somewhat related to Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who is the namesake of the center mm-hmm. that I associate relatively yeah. direct here at UC San Diego, Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. Right. Uh, and the first one has to do with his very, very famous quip, uh, which is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And my super producer, Stuart Volkow, who's over there, hi, Stu, always inserts that in every podcast opening. Uh, so you actually hear Sir Arthur's voice yeah, saying those yeah, iconic yeah, okay. words. I want to ask you in, in sort of a uh, big picture, not nothing related yeah, to the book anymore. Yeah. What invention or creation of humanity is most closely evocative of magic you know i often my my father died at a relatively young age about um 45 years ago um and um i often think what he would think if he were alive today to see the tools we have Hmm. certainly information technologies that we have uh are would have seen magic to him i think um and you know my other favorite is the biology Hmm. Uh, the advances that we've made in understanding and manipulating how living things work, uh, those are, I would assert, indistinguishable from magic hmm. to people from as recently as 50 years ago. <laughs> in the uh, in the spirit of uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, the next question I like to ask is the following. He said, and I quote, the only way to determine the limits of the possible is to go beyond them into the impossible and that's the name of this podcast um i want to ask you uh what uh what former event in the form of advice to your younger self maybe 20 year old steve um what would you get advise him you have 30 seconds to talk to old steve or young steve what would you advise him to give him sort of the courage to do as you've done bucking you know so many scientists around the world and and in in with facts and data to go into the impossible. In other words, advice to your former self. You got a few seconds to talk to your oh boy, your twenty-year-old Steve. Year old Steve you, you know, uh, first of all, um, don't feel inhibited by self-doubt, by uh, lack of self-confidence. Uh, you're no different than everybody else. You will make mistakes, but you'll learn from those mistakes. Use your imagination, but also use the tools that you've been given of logic, quantitative. Uh, love for understanding how the world works uh, and go out and uh, just have a swing at it. (laughs) Okay, the next question is a quip by Sir Arthur. He said, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And we talked about Feynman's quote that uh, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. What is an expert? Should we aspire to be an expert? These two gentlemen are kind of casting aspersions on this. When I used to think, and I still do, to be honest with you, that you should aspire to greatness, you should aspire to to mastery and and, and merit and and earning. Um, but but how do you react to that? Should what 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 do we make of these? Uh, uh, you know, as um, as William F. Buckley Jr. used to say about the uh, the he'd rather be governed by the first hundred names in the yeah, Boston yeah, phone book. Yeah. So what do you make of experts? Do we need them? Are they are so, they so let's necessary? Distinguish between experts in the sciences versus experts in other fields. Absolutely, so, yeah, please. And I think there are two dimensions of expertise. One is a deep knowledge of the subject. Uh, the facts, the figures, what has been done before, uh, and so on. But then there's another dimension, which is, I think, a bit pernicious. Hmm. And that is that you get locked into certain ways of thinking, community ways. And, you know, plate tectonics is maybe the best example of where the experts were all wrong and the mm-hmm. evidence was staring them in the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it took a long time until they came around. So, uh, you know, respect expertise for their knowledge of the facts and figures, but not necessarily of the paradigm that they lay on top of the science. Very good. Okay, the last question inspired by Sir Arthur C. Clarke uh, is the following. He said, and I quote, when an elderly, I'm not calling you elderly, but an elderly but distinguished scientist says something is possible, he is quite likely to be right. However, when he says something is impossible, he is very likely to be wrong. What have you been wrong about? I was wrong about the solar neutrino problem, okay? Which yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, There was this famous factor of uh, one third uh, deficit, and I I think I've actually said at a conference at some point, you know, there's probably some feature of the sun or plasma physics that was wrong, and and I was actually sitting on a thesis at Caltech where it was about coherent neutrino 
propagation, and he came so close to the what we now know is the answer. Um, I, you know, I poo pooed it. So that can't be right. So I was wrong. Okay, mm -hmm. but you know, look, I, I would say a batting average of one third on uh, like in baseball. Uh, on major questions like that was be doing pretty well. Yeah. So I've been right about something. They too. say, you know, yeah. a theorist only has to be right once in once. his life yeah, to be yeah, a, yeah, yeah. have a good career. <laughs> An experimentalist only can be wrong once That's, in his career. Yeah, right. uh, Professor Steve Coonan, uh, let, let me just take one quick question, detour. What is the state of academia today? What's it like at NYU? NYU is a very, I see it as a very... Um, uh, imaginative. I've talked to people at NYU Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. I know there's one in Shanghai or yep, someplace like yep, that. Yep. Talk about academia. What does the new ac model of academia look like? And what can we do to, because you're a renowned teacher as well. Um, most of education is sclerotically stuck in the way it was in the University of Bologna in yeah, 1080 AD. Yeah, yeah. Talk about what innovations we might expect uh, from the perspective of a master teacher. Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to distinguish the undergraduates from the graduates. Of course. I think at the undergraduate level, you've got to become an expert in something, at least if you're going to be in the sciences. T-shaped, you know, so mm -hmm. you got to learn your mathematics, you got to learn biology, geology, whatever it is you're going to specialize in. Because that's the pedestal on which you can then reach out as a graduate student to try to tackle some of these broader multidisciplinary problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in my own career, I cut my teeth in nuclear physics, and uh, it took me about, oh, 15 years after my PhD to start to get interested in these squirmier scientific problems, never mind the societal right. problems. So I'd like to teach the kids, the undergraduate level, um, you know, tend to the basics first, get some sense that there are these bigger problems, but don't try to tackle something bigger until you've demonstrated mastery of mm -hmm. something first. Yeah. Right? I was but then at the graduate mm -hmm. level, you know, tackle those big problems. Absolutely. Yeah. I used to say to my students, you know, if I was your art teacher, I'd say paint the masters, yeah. you know, yeah. do right. the derivations that the came before. Exercises, right? It gives yeah. a direct pathway to the. Yeah. So when I was a kid, when I was uh, thinking about graduate school, yeah. I said, they told me, don't go into nuclear physics. It's a dead yeah. field. Yeah. Now we've got Oppenheimer. You guys are, are, are rock yeah, yeah, stars, yeah, yeah. literally. Right. Have you everybody's seen the movie yet? Not yet. Okay. No, you should everybody's see Everybody's interested. Right. Yeah. Everyone's right. interested. So, um, as someone who also uh, served in the Obama administration, worked in government, what do you say about people, you know, scientists and, and you know, informing people in Congress, perhaps you see the, the tragedy that occurred to him and, and uh, persecution that he underwent. Um, you, you've been yeah. relentlessly yeah. attacked, I think, in the media by colleagues and so forth. Yeah. Um, would you advise people to get into to government or to serve the country in, in I, such a way or, or would you have reservations? Yeah, so, so um you know, you, you cite some high-profile cases, but I know many scientists who work either as federal employees or as um, in the national laboratories, uh, and they are as dedicated and as honest as uh, people in academia, you or I, would be. We'd recognize them as, as credible scientists. Mm -hmm. The problem is when that work starts to touch policy issues. And whether it's epidemiology or it's climate and energy, um, uh, environment, other environmental issues, that's where sometimes people will spin the story and not give a straight answer. You know, I'm far enough along in my career, I've got enough of a <laughs> reputation. I frankly don't care. My main goal is to just try to inform people in a transparent, unbiased way. Mm -hmm. And I guess lastly, you know, now with the advent of uh, artificial intelligence, large language models and so forth, um, I found it very exciting, actually. And I'm playing around with it, not only, you know, as a you know, human interest level of just, you know, constructing my own uh, what I call Brybot, um, uh -huh. but, but also uh, right. constructing physics um, tools, because yeah. I do believe that we are stuck in a model that's a thousand years old and how many thousand year old things have not been disrupted. And I do believe we could have things where we have distance learning. We have uh, artificial Galileo uh, I've worked on because I have access to the written text of the dialogue, uh -huh, uh, uh -huh, which uh -huh. uh, I recorded the first ever audiobook ever okay, right. by Galileo uh, right. with Frank Wilcha 
Kubek and, and uh-huh. uh, colleagues at uh, Carlo Rovelli and others. Yeah. But um, when I think about the potential for that, yeah. so here at, at UCSD, we had famous Herb York, who I'm sure you I knew, who yeah, plays right. a, like yeah. a, the, maybe a millisecond role in Oppenheimer. Right. We had uh, Harold Urey, who was yeah. a big component yeah. of the Manhattan right. Project. Right. We had all these people that were in, involved in government and also right. in, in, in organizations. Uh, but but the question I have is, you know, how do we how do we translate whether or not this is an existential threat, an existential benefit, you know, a, a boost to society or not. Where are you falling in this camp of can artificial intelligence lead to, say, new laws of physics, yeah, perhaps? Yeah. Well, we've seen it lead to new strategies in Go, for example, right? And mm-hmm. you take an AI that's learned how to play Go and it surprises the masters, right? That's right. They did it that way. My God, I never thought about that, right? <laughs> so I think there are specialized AIs we can be building. Uh, physics is a great example, or even something more narrow in general relativity, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that would be tremendous tools mm-hmm. for education, for research. I mean, even now, of course, I'm sure you and others uh, find, as I do, Google just a wonderful way uh-huh. of ferreting out information mm-hmm. that um, you need or are interested in. So I think the, the AI, ChatGPT, for example, um, will be when properly tuned, wonderful. I'll give you my experience with Chat GPT, all right? And one of the things I'm interested in is Greenland's ice loss, right? Mm-hmm. And so I asked it, this was a couple of months ago, is Greenland losing ice? And I get kind of the standard media story. And then I said, well, what about this paper that shows, in fact, it's not losing ice so rapidly? And it took me about four iterations until I got to something that was consistent. Yes, you have to supervise research. it. Yeah, you've got to keep correcting mm-hmm. it. But um, I think it's got a lot of potential. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not worried about an existential threat. I think okay. it will be a great boon. Well, Steve Coonan, professor, uh, I think of you as an educator, as a, as a curious soul, as somebody who's very much interested in solving the biggest problems, whether it's at the realm of the smallest possible entities, nuclei and quantum fields, all the way up to entire planetary scale phenomena. I want to thank you for spending so much of your valuable time here with our humble podcast. And I know our audience is forever grateful. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you.